Well, it's my joy to introduce um, a brother that I've um, not known for a while. But once you get close to Jason, you recognize genuine um, sibling love and care for God's people. And so it's going to be a great treat for us. Um, Jason Bradshaw, who is up in the pulpit as I speak, uh, will be delivering a message. And most of you know that we have gone through the Psalms this summer. We continue to do so, and it's a great joy to my heart. I hope that you feel the same. Uh, the one Psalm that he has selected is, is one of my favorite Psalms. It, it got into the top 150, definitely. <laughs> And in my heart, it has gone up to top 10, top 5, and maybe after this morning, it will be my top 1. So we want to welcome you, Jason. Jody is out there somewhere along with the three kiddos, and we welcome his family. Before he preaches, I'd just like us all to turn our affections and attentions upward and outward to our one true. Why don't you stand here so I'll just pray over you and with you. And then I'll get out of here and let's open up our hearts. Father, we come to you with great anticipation. When the Bible is open, saturated in prayer, our anticipation is met by you speaking and caring and loving and, and even adoring your children, moving closer and closer to transformation into Christ's image with us. We bless you for that moment. We thank you for Pastor Jason. We pray that his eyes will be illumined, his heart will be pliable, his tongue will be animated, and we will hear from you the very riches found in Jesus Christ. So come and refresh us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Well, as Dan has shared, my name is Jason Bradshaw. I am the pastor of Gospel Community Church, and it is a pleasure to be here with you this morning, if only because I think we have something in common. We have a friend named Garrison, and I love Garrison. In fact, Garrison's one of my favorite people to sit and talk with, um, if only because I never know if he's going to talk about bavink or bench presses. I don't know, right? And I love him for that. He has this multitude of interests, and I never know what angle he's going to have on any given topic. But deeper than that, because I know that Garrison loves Jesus, and that he pastors you with the other elders that love Jesus, that you and I have a commonality in Christ. And we have fellowship together with the Father through Christ, as 1 John 1 says. And so we come together today to celebrate that goodness and mercy in Christ. It's my understanding that we're going to read this passage, and I wonder if you might indulge me in something, because at my home church we do something, and we stand, and we read the text. Would you mind indulging me as we stand just to honor the text that the God has put in front of us this morning from Psalm 16? David writes this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grab a seat. I wonder if you might be in agreement with me today that we have a drought of joy. We have a drought of joy, a shortage of joy, as it were. Let me just give a few evidences that we see of this. Our suicide rates are through the roof. We consume antidepressants by the bucket load. Just even some experiential evidences of angry people. I was driving through Troy a few months ago, and there was a car accident there. And I watch as this woman is grabbing the bumper and just throwing it as far as she can. And the poor guy that was in the other side of the accident is just white-knuckling the steering wheel and locking the doors, staying inside as much as he can. There's so much anger, lack of joy. See, if I'm being honest, I've experienced a lack of joy as well, and perhaps you also have experienced a lack of joy. And this is a funny thing, because uh, the, the Bible tells us that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, that if we are in Christ and have the Spirit dwelling inside of us, that we should experience joy. As a Christian, we have constant access to the Spirit, and we have constant access to the Spirit. We should feel joy consistently, yet we don't, if we're honest with ourselves. The question I posed to a friend of mine a few months ago is, why does joy so often escape me? So this morning, we have our work cut out for us. We want to take this ancient text, and we want to fast forward it into the 21st century. We want to take something that God has set in front of us that he had had written years and years and years ago and assume that it has something to say to us here and now today. And we don't want to just unpack the meaning. We want it to apply to our hearts and lives because we know that the Lord has us here to hear this text right now. Right? See, here's our big idea from Psalm 16. God preserves his people through resurrection. 
that God preserves you and I, if we're in Christ, through a resurrection, which we'll get to later on in our passage, but this is cause for eternal joy. See, I claim nothing short of a wellspring of joy here in Psalm 16. And if we unpack this faithfully, I think we can find some some kind of foundational clauses for us to kind of bank our hope on this morning so that we can have room for true, lasting joy in Christ. So I'm going to invite you to read with me in Psalm 16. We're going to break our passage into two halves. In verses 1 through 8, we're going to see that God's goodness is is present in day-to-day life. And so we'll see that in verses 1 through 8. And then finally, in verses 9 through 11, we're going to see God's eternal goodness. We're going to see a a word, therefore, as he draws out implications, and he talks about God's true goodness in in a different facet. And so I want to invite us into verses 1 through 8 of Psalm 16 this morning, where we're going to see God's goodness in day-to-day life. Let me read these verses again. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. See, David starts off, and our psalm actually starts off with this inscription, right? It says, a miktame of David. And I, I wish I could stand in front of you and tell you what a miktame was, other than something that I have no idea what it is, right? But the important thing for us is to see that David is our author. David was a man of deep contradictions. He was both deeply spiritual and deeply flawed. Few characters in the Bible exhibit such a mindfulness of the Lord, but also few characters in the Bible make such a mess of their house because of their own personal sinfulness. The truth is that our author this morning is a lot like us. He starts in verses 1 and 2 with a call for preservation to a good God. He calls for God's preservation in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. If you read the story of David's life, you know that David knew a thing or two about refuge. The dude hid out in a cave for like two years of his life, right? We see this in 1 Samuel 22. And he was a warrior, and he, he knew there were times that you ran away and hid, right? But here... David is seeking God as his refuge. In David's physical world of swords and spears and shields, David takes up God as his spiritual refuge. Verse 2 continues to give the picture. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now remember that word good, right? That's uh, Genesis 1, that God created something and then he pronounced it tobe or he pronounced it good. And so he has this rhythm in Genesis 1 of he creates, he sees, and he pronounces. And so David's 
kind of spitting that back at God, saying, I have no goodness outside of what you give to me. And what David is going to do from this point forward, he's going to unpack some of this goodness that, that God has bestowed upon his servants. And so God's people are good in verses 3 and 4. And then later on we'll see that God's providence is good in verses 5 and 6. And then in verses 7 through 8, I ran out of peace. So we're going to say pedagogy, his teaching, his instruction is good, right? I'm trying to be a Baptist this morning and it just doesn't fit sometimes. And so in verses 3 and 4, we see that God's people are good. That's what he says. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Specifically, he's speaking of these saints or these holy ones in the land. This is a reference to God's faithful people, those who follow his laws. And David looks beyond uh, their circumstances and sees these faithful saints as kings and queens. They're the excellent ones, right? That's an Old Testament phrase that would denote royalty of some kind. And David describes, in contrast, in verse 4, those who run after other gods. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. See, David describes these people who are in pursuit, not simply that they tolerate other gods or that they're occasionally around other gods. These people are actively worshiping idols. And notice this, that David has two categories of people this morning. He has those who are the holy ones, the excellent ones, who are faithful to the Lord, and he has another category of idolatrous worshipers, that there's not much ground in between. Notice that this pursuit multiplies sorrows. We still see this today, don't we? We might think it's most evident in the lives of of those who are addicted around us. We find addictions prevalent, and and as we, we see them devoted to this kind of idol of sorts, there's this multiplication of sorrows that we see. The pursuit of satisfying addictions often leads to the foregoing of others' needs. I remember... Years ago, a friend of mine came back from a missions trip to which uh, he went to this place and he described the poverty that was there and kind of the alcoholism and devotion to drugs and other things that were there. And then he made this statement. He said, it's the strangest things. They'll have a large screen TV, but they don't put a front door on their house. It's a description of their addiction, of their their poverty, the, the, the multiplying of their sorrows that they've banked upon some type of entertainment, but there's no security in their life. And before we throw those addicts or others under the bus, we recognize that the life of the clean person is also given to idols. I love the writings of a, of a writer named David Foster Wallace. He wrote in the 80s. Here he looks like the lead singer of Guns N' Roses. I can't remember his name. Axl Rose, that's right. He says this, he says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, and by the way, this this man is not a Christian in any way, shape, or form. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, 
If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel, end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. See, idolatry causes sorrow. Jesus told us that you can't worship both God and money. Our idolatries will cut us off from the fountain of living water and will lead us to a drought of joy. And so David, in verse 4, says that he refuses to pour out their drink offerings of blood. Now, before we get confused about the drink offerings, this was obviously an idolatrous form of worship. There's no place in the Old Testament where we pour out a drink offering of blood. This is probably tied to some type of other cult worship that was there prevalent in David's day. So this is an idolatrous practice that he's describing. In fact, David won't even take the names of these idols on his lips. So God God gives good things in his people. He blesses us with the saints in the land. But verses 5 and 6 unpack a different aspect of God's goodness. God's providence is good. Look at what he says. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Just notice the words he's using in these two verses. Portions, lines, inheritance. All of this is kind of calling back to our minds. If we're familiar with our Old Testament, what happened in Joshua chapter 14 through Joshua 19, where the Israelites have come into the promised land, and they start divvying up the promised land amongst the the tribes of Israel. And so what they do is they cast lots and they start dividing this land amongst themselves. And David is recognizing that God holds his lot. He controls the dice, as it were. So David sees this beauty in his inheritance, not just the stuff that he has, but the Lord himself as his inheritance. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. David's looking beyond the gift itself to the God who grants these good things. So God's blessed him with people. God's blessed him with providence. And finally, God will bless him with this pedagogy, this instruction. This God's pedagogy is good. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in verse 7. God's counsel was a particularly important matter to David. On multiple occasions, David inquired of the Lord in 1 Samuel 23, in 2 Samuel 5. And most likely what this involved was he would grab his priest, his high priest, and they had this weird thing on their chest that had these two little dice things, we think, called the Urim and the Thummim. And they would kind of cast lots to kind of get a sense of what the Lord's direction was in that place. And so David used this ability to ask God directly what he should do. But it also seems that David had something much more internal to him that would guide and direct him. In verse 7 he says, In the night also my heart instructs me. 
And before you start going all Oprah on us here this morning, we're not talking about the follow your heart language. The, the Bible is very clear about the, the deceptive nature of our heart, that we can't trust our kind of inward inclinations, that we need it to be kind of stripped away like stone and replaced like flesh that God promises in Ezekiel and in other places. But God is internally directing David. It's worth noting this morning that when David became king, he was anointed. He received the Spirit. And that he's kind of guided and directed by this Spirit as he leads as king. We also should anticipate a guiding and directing by the Lord as he dwells within us. You and I might sense the promptings of the Spirit. Scripture passages called to memory, urgency in prayer. We also have this directing in the night. Verse 8 tells us that the Lord is always before him. Not only does he provide counsel, he's present. Look at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I see these advertisements come across my, my feed in various places all the time for master class, right? And you can... Uh, Learn how to cook with people like Gordon Ramsay without him calling you an idiot sandwich or whatever else. You can learn how to shoot a basketball with Steph Curry. You can do all of these things. We take uh, those people who are foremost in their field and we put a camera in front of them and we learn about their expertise directly from them. What David is describing is not just someone who has expertise, but someone who's sovereign, who is constantly present with him. Imagine if you had these experts always with you, and they weren't just experts, they were the sovereign God of the universe. We don't just have great counsel, we have a great counselor who's consistently present, always here. And so we step back from our passage for a second. We just see, ah, the Lord is good. He's, he's good. We, David wants to find refuge in this good God who provides a people who provides his, his pedagogy, who provides his, his sovereign providence for his people. Reminds us this morning that God is the author of good things. And David invites us to reflect on this goodness here this morning. He says, I have no good apart from you. It's my understanding that classical antiquity would break things into three categories. There were three transcendental qualities. There was goodness, truth, and beauty. Goodness is kind of the ethos, truth is the logos, and beauty is the pathos. And somewhere along the way in Christian history, Christians grabbed hold of this kind of trifecta and kind of co-opted it into biblical or Christian theology. And I think that was a good thing. See, God was the ultimate source of what was good and the ultimate source of what was true and the ultimate source of what was beautiful. But herein lies the problem, right? You and I have this tendency to take the good creation of God, the good truth of God, the good beauty of God, and sinfully twist and distort it. few examples. The Bible shows us this long line of people who have warped God's good world. Wasn't that the temptation in the, in the garden where Eve was tempted to distort knowledge? The fruit was pleasing to the eyes and good to make one wise so that Eve could become like God. Lamech 
distorted justice so that he killed a man for wounding him in Genesis chapter 4. Laban distorted authority and family. He used Jacob for his personal profit. David and Samson distorted sex and intimacy. They pursued men and or women like Bathsheba, and they caused adultery to take place. I was reading yesterday from Richard Lovelace's uh, Renewal as a Way of Life. And he's unpacking this idea that we have this influence of the world. And what we do is we want to take the good things of, of commerce and, and, and the things that God has blessed us for our world, and we want to twist them and distort them. We find these distortions all throughout our society. So you and I, we also distort God's good world, don't we? We spend a lot of our time trying to create good things to make us like God. Just follow me with this for a second. We have cell phones that are meant to make us all-knowing. We have workout equipment that, makes, that are meant to make us eternal. And our social media outlets are me meant to make us omnipresent. And we surround ourselves with all of these things that are meant for us to replace God so that we can twist and distort God's good world and we can be sufficient on our own. Tozer has this quote, and he says, Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. This morning, God is the only creator of good. James tells us in James 1, 17, he says, Every good thing given, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. And here in Psalm 16, David affirms there is no good to be found apart from God. Brothers and sisters, if we are to find anything good, anything lasting, anything beautiful or truthful or good, it will come from the presence of God. Too many times we see it pass through human fingertips and take on the distortions of our sinful hearts. But David isn't done with us yet. He's given us these three Ps as an example of his goodness. But we could partake of all of these things and still die. We could, we could be with God's people. We could partake of his providence to us. And we could have his kind of teaching and instruction present with us. But we could still die. We could live our 70 or 75 years of, of goodness and God's presence and, and blessing and all of these things. But we could still be planted into the ground. And so David still has something for us to unpack here in verses 9 through 11. He has this eternal goodness that he wants to invite us into. Look at verses 9 through 11 of Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, for so my, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand 
our pleasures forevermore. God gives joy, and we see this in verses 9 and 11 particularly. Therefore, in verse 9, is important. It's kind of the hinge point of this psalm, right? It's three through eight, time and time again throughout the book of Philippians. Rejoice, right? And there's this, his circumstance. Where is Paul when he's writing the book of Philippians? He's in prison. And he's writing uh, in the context of, of kind of uh, defending himself. Uh, from these opponents in Philippians chapter 1. And so Paul is pressed in this letter. He's in a prison cell. He has these opponents, but his attitude is one of gratitude and joy. This attitude and gratitude is rooted in Christ. And he unpacks it in chapter 2. He says that Christ was in very nature God. And he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But but Jesus made himself nothing, even to the point of death. But it's that means of humility that that Jesus led to Jesus' exaltation, right? So that the Father exalts him and gives gives him the name above every other name. This is constantly happening in the book of Philippians where we're in our low position and we're envisioning something higher and exalted and the means by which we get there is humiliation, is self-death. So in chapter 3, Paul will go on and said, I counted everything as rubbish that I might attain Christ. You and I, we want to get to the high, exalted places of joy, and we find ourselves down in the, in the, in the valleys of, of pain and suffering and difficulty. How do we get there? Through humiliation and exaltation. We get there through training our mind to seek out the paths of the gospel, retraining our mind to think about our presence in the holy places with Christ. See, when Paul tells us In Philippians, he says this in in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, rejoice in the Lord. There's that word in the middle of the word, right? Joy, rejoice. But when he says it, it's command. Does that catch anyone else off guard? Because we think of joy as an emotion. It's like Bobby McFerrin telling us, don't worry, be happy, right? Right? We think it's odd that we would put on an emotion. But what Paul is inviting us to say is that joy is not just an emotion. It's a state of mind. It's a, a, a true state that we enter into through our theology, through our thinking upon God's goodness in Christ. See, if we think joy is an emotion, this is a strange thing. But we, when we view it in the context of Philippians, joy is a state of mind to be put on. It rises above prison cells and opponents. It counts all things as rubbish in order that it may obtain Christ. See, here in Psalm 16, we have this reflection from David where he's saying, preserve me, O God, preserve me. And then he gives us, in in verse 11, verse 10, he gives us this statement about the coming resurrection of Jesus so that verse 11 can culminate so that we can find true joy in his presence. See, our work this morning, Christian, is to pursue joy. Is to pursue joy. Fight to find a state of mind where your heart can push through its circumstance and find the indestructible joy of Christ. Take 
time aside in your day to, to reflect upon God's goodness in Christ, in the scriptures, to, to pray those things back to our Lord and to thank him so that we can release the pressure on our hearts and minds. That's the work we have in front of us. That's the joy that is always present for you. If we think that our eyes might just kind of roll into the back of our head and that God will kind of, in the twinkling of an eye, make us joyful, we might have the wrong notions of what Christian joy is. Instead, I wonder if God is inviting us to consider that Christian joy comes through resurrection. Christian permanence comes through resurrection, and therefore I have so much to rejoice in. I wonder if I might pray this morning that God would make us people who find joy. Whether we're in Troy, Ohio, or, or down here in Dayton, whether we're on the other side of the earth, wherever we are, that we might be marked by true Christian joy that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, that can be kind of teased out in any of life's circumstances. I want to pray to that end this morning. Would you pray with me? We plead with you, plead with you. Make us people of joy. Even as there is a drought of joy in our world today, a drought of joy oftentimes in my own life. Help me to pursue joy. Help me to clear out the foundations of joy that you've established in Christ. Allow us to be people who are marked by joy regardless of our circumstance. And I pray that in that you would receive all glory and honor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.